You guys may be seated for a few moments. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for joining us on this uh, rather frigid morning. Uh, I was out uh, cooking for 120 college students yesterday at 6 a.m., and let me tell you, it was a little warmer then than it is now. It was a lot of fun. Hanging out with college students, it was great. I do want to take a moment and discuss uh, giving in this time. We've got a few opportunities for you to give, whether you're online or in person. As you can see on the screen, you can give by scanning that QR code, going to the web address. You can even text that in. If you're here, you have the ability to give as you exit. Now, why do I talk about giving? Why is that as important? Well, as we wrapped up our end-of-year financials, and we've, of course, approved our new budget going into this year, I really just want to celebrate the generosity that God has displayed through you and your giving. So many of you give generously, not only of your time, effort, and energy, but of your finances that have let us give out hundreds of free spaghetti dinners, that have multiple events where we can engage people with the gospel of Jesus, and have led us to this incredible moment this year where we get to not only go on a mission trip this spring, where we get to take an opportunity to have discipleship training this spring, we're also kicking back with small groups. And so such a celebration, a beautiful thing to honor your generosity. I want to express on, on behalf of our entire congregation, our leadership, Pastor Brian and myself, thank you for your willingness to sacrifice and serve, not only in giving your time, effort, and energy, but of giving of your finances. Now, as we continue today, we're going to be continuing our study here in the book of Acts and the gospel advances. We're going to be continuing in Acts chapter 8, and I've titled today's sermon, The Movement of God, because as we look at this passage, as we continue this series in Acts, we're going to see God continue to move, not only in terms of who he is reaching, as he's expanding the gospel impact from just those who are within the Jewish faith or race, but going to reach the Gentiles and those who are outside what we would traditionally call the family of God in this era. Now, his movement is not only limited to that area, but it's expanding in a geographic sense. We see the gospel going forth from Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we are here today because the movement of God moved from that small town in Jerusalem to the entire world where we are spiritual descendants of the labor of not only Christ, but of what the disciples accomplished in this time. And so we have this beautiful moment to celebrate the movement of God working across all generations to bring us here to this cold morning in January 2022, 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, where we are celebrating the goodness of God. And so as we typically do, I would invite you to stand with us as we read God's word. We're going to be in Acts chapter 28, Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 26. You'll see it up on the screen as well. Beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. 
Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generations, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded a chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and passing through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you today and for your continual movement to advance the gospel to people who are far from you. That we stand in this room, many of us perhaps because someone was faithful to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus to us. And so, Lord, we are thankful for that good news. We're thankful for the grace that you've shown us. And we pray today as we study this passage that you would reveal your truth to us, that you would show us what it is you're doing in our hearts and lives, but more importantly, show us who you are and who we are to be as a result of your goodness. So Father, would you remove anything that would impede us from seeing your will in this passage? Would you allow the Spirit to continue to work in our hearts and minds so that we might be receptive to the words here? And that ultimately, as we proclaim this good news from this passage, as we wrestle with this text, may it all bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. Father, we are thankful for you and for the good news that you've given us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can be seated. Now, as we enter into this story, we're picking up from the first half of Acts chapter 8, and we've already been introduced to Philip, who uh, seems to be a, quite an evangelist. You know, we, we've had some miraculous encounters already, and he's full of the Spirit as it references in Acts 6 about him and the rest of the deacons that are serving. And as he comes forth, he's doing some incredible things. But yet we see something that begins his journey yet again here. We see something, specifically it's our first point. We see that the movement of God begins with the Spirit. The movement of God begins with the Spirit. Look back at verses 26 through 29 with me. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So as we start this passage, we have evidence from already in Acts chapter 8 that Philip is receptive to the leading of the Spirit. He's listening intently for God to speak. And here at the beginning of the passage, we see God's work on display quite clearly. See, verse 26 tells us that an angel speaks to Philip and commands him to go south. 
You know, I, I don't know about you, but if you've ever kind of studied through the Bible to see descriptions of angels, you know, we have this kind of almost cartoonish picture of angels where they got a little halo and some feather wings and they've got a harp or something, right? That's not quite how the Bible describes angels. Uh, when we see in Luke uh, chapter 2 where the shepherds are terrified of this angel appearing, there's this otherworldly heavenly creature that appears that is kind of intimidating. And yet here we see Philip, when this angel shows up, he listens. He gets his attention, right? I mean, I guess if an angel showed up to us like that, something that was clearly not of this world, you and I might go, huh, let's pay attention to this. Regardless of what might happen here, Philip hears this angel speak, and so he listens. He obeys. Verse 27, we see that his obedience is to get up and go. The Greek here actually doesn't paint a picture. There's any real hesitation. There's no time passing. He gets up as the angel speaks to him and goes. That's direct, immediate obedience. And so he begins to head down this road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a very important road. It's a well-traveled road in this time. It's typically full of people heading to and from Egypt. You know, we say he's going down to Gaza. It's the very last watering place before the desert on the route to Egypt. It's important to recognize that much of this area is characterized by a lack of water. It's not quite a desert, but it's one bad rain season away from becoming one. It's going to be important later on in a few minutes. Keep that in your mind. Now, as he's going down this road, as one might, walking down the road, he encounters some people. Specifically, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch here. Now, Luke goes in a great deal of effort to describe this man that Philip encounters, and we really need to pay attention to some of these terms before we continue forward, right? That they're important context for us to understand. He describes him as an Ethiopian. And what we recognize is that he's likely referring to him as being from a kingdom of Moreau. It's an empire in the southwest of modern Ethiopia. Uh, we know that because he's referring to this reference to the Candace, it's unusual, right? But in this empire, it was ruled not by kings, but by queens who were referred to by the title of the Candace. So a little bit of historical background. We can track where this man is from. <coughs> He's described as a eunuch and essentially as, as a treasurer here who, who is keeping track of the finances of the kingdom. It paints this picture of someone who has extraordinary responsibilities and a significant role in his home country. <coughs> of crucial importance, though, is this description of eunuch. Now, as we think about what this means, we have to recognize that what Luke is trying to express here is that perhaps he's an actual physical eunuch, or, or maybe he's not. We, we don't really know. Um, in ancient times, in many parts of the world, Young men were often castrated to serve as keepers of the harem and the treasury. And, and in fact, it was so common in the ancient world that it was used often, this word eunuch, as a synonym for treasurer. Right? <coughs> now, why is that important? Why is it important that we try to wrestle with? Is this a physical thing? Is it just a title? Well, I think there are some context clues that tell us that this is a physical eunuch, particularly this separation of eunuch and, and treasurer as descriptors. Why is this important? What's the significance of this as we study this passage? Well, I think, frankly, his physical status is incredibly important to our story here. 
You see, it tells us that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. It paints this picture that he's a, a Gentile who we would refer to as a, as a God-fearer, someone who's aware of the God of Israel, who wants to honor them. <clears throat> now, they're not full members of the covenant or the kingdom of God at this point in terms of the story of Judaism. They're not a part of this extended family, but they respect the God of the, the Israelites. They're, they want to worship him however they can. Now, it's important why I think this is significant to wrestle with, you know, is he a physical eunuch or not? And this is why I think he is. For this man to be a physical eunuch, he would have been denied entry into the temple and the covenant community due to his physical deformities. You see, he could visit Jerusalem, he could see the temple at a distance, but he could never enter it. Though he knows of this God of Israelites, according to the Jewish customs, he could never be a part of the family of God. Yet, despite this insurmountable hurdle, we see him here studying the word of God. He's studying the scriptures out loud and he's reading through the prophet Isaiah. And then we see the spirit move yet again in this moment. And Philip feels the need to walk alongside this man. Now, as we look at this section of Acts chapter 8, we recognize that this is characterized by the Spirit making it clear for Philip to go forth and to speak. As we continue to study the book of Acts, we're going to see that the ministry of the Spirit includes leading us, that is, ordinary people, a part of the family of God, to fulfill the mission of God. 59 times we see the Spirit referenced in the book of Acts. 36 of those, the Spirit is speaking, giving a command to the people of God. This is important because we recognize from the book of Acts, from our own lives, from the world we live in, the mission of God is that we would see every human life with opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save the lost. That, that is the point of this expansion of the church, of reaching these Gentiles, of expanding from Jerusalem, expanding from Israel. It is so that every man, woman, and child might see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, God is so passionate about this mission that he would allow persecution to come upon his holy church so that they might be sent out to tell of the glory of Jesus. You see, this leading of the Spirit here, it's not just limited to the book of Acts. So, so often I recognize as we read the book of Acts, we're studying this and we're going, well, this is the early church and we don't quite have to live in a certain way like this because it was a unique time and a unique ministry of the Word and the Spirit, right? And so things are different now. Here's the truth. As we study this passage, we recognize this reality. While we may not often have a clear, audible voice speaking to us like Philip clearly does here, we do feel the Spirit leading us through the Word of God, through the local church, and yes, even through specific burdens upon our heart. This is literally the first time I've spoken to humans in the last three weeks, so like, you're welcome for my call. 
Now, the importance of this, as we wrestle with this, when we study the Word of God, the Spirit is speaking through the Scriptures. When we are within the local church, God in His wisdom is speaking through the wisdom and the grace and kindness that is found within the body of Christ. Even the things that you are passionate about or that you're concerned with, that you feel a burden that you want to wrestle with, that is the Spirit directing you in your life. Perhaps we should consider if God is beginning to stir us towards movement when we encounter these elements of leading in our own lives. That when we read the Bible, the Spirit is transforming us so that we might live in accordance to the Word. That when we gather with the church, we are being encouraged to live as Christ has called His holy church to live. When our hearts are burdened, by things that concern us within our community, within the lives of our friends and family. That is God leading us to take an active role in reconciling all men, women, and children to himself. You see, this leading that we see on display here is not just for our sake, not just so that we might live in a holy way, but it's for the sake of the gospel that we are being directed and called and encouraged to live. That takes us to our second point, that the movement of God is for the gospel. The movement of God is for the gospel. Look at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. But in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generations for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You see, the movement of God is for the gospel. Philip comes alongside this chariot, and he hears this eunuch reading from Isaiah, and for us that seems very unusual, but... That's a normal thing in this day and age, to read aloud and to wrestle with things together with your companions. And Philip, with boldness, really, seizes upon this opportunity. He asks this eunuch, do, do you understand what you're reading? Do you know what you're wrestling with? And the eunuch boldly proclaims right back to him that I can't understand this without a guide. How am I supposed to understand what's happening here without someone to reveal the truth to me? You see, this phrase, this statement here, this supports a basic principle that we see here, not only in the books of Luke and in Acts, but also it's a crucial one for us to interpret and understand the Bible. You see, Luke, throughout the book of Luke and the book of Acts, he repeatedly emphasizes that we need an interpreter for the Old Testament. That for us as Christians, as Christ followers, we are just like the eunuch when we read the Old Testament. We need someone to interpret it for us. 
Now for us, our interpreter of the Old Testament is both the New Testament and Jesus. You see, what we have happening here is that we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. In the New Testament, we have the scriptures fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus. This lets us fully understand the truth and beauty of the Old Testament laid out before us. We know how this story ends. We know how the story ends, and we can use this to understand how the story begins as well. Now, this doesn't perhaps on the surface seem like a significant move in understanding the Bible or even something that would be important to focus on, but if we're truly going to understand the Word of God, we have to take the things that we do understand, like many of the passages in the New Testament, and apply those to the things that we don't understand, many of the passages in the Old Testament. And so Luke is encouraging us as we're studying the Scriptures to very practically look to the New Testament and look at the light, the full light of the revelation of Jesus and use that to inform our study of the old. Now the relevance here is that Philip, as he looks at this statement, as he hears this, he doesn't look a gift horse in the mouth and he jumps right up on top of this chariot so that he might begin to wrestle with the text and explain to this man what's happening. Now, As we've seen, this guy is reading from the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, he's reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. That's what's quoted here in Acts 8. And this is a passage from the suffering servant section of Isaiah. You see, we see a focus here on the suffering, the humiliation, and ultimately the the glory that Christ receives through his ministry. The entire suffering servant section is focusing on this. And perhaps as this eunuch is, is reading this section, he can, he can emphasize with this suffering and humiliation that Christ has felt while longing to be lifted up in some way. Without getting into too much perhaps graphic detail, he's lost so much about what makes him special in that society. He's no longer able to have descendants There'll be no one to take care of him when he gets old. He's lost the ability to have a family. He's likely a slave, so for the rest of his life, he'll be in captivity and bondage. Perhaps he can empathize with Christ's suffering and humiliation because that's what he lives in every single day. You see, you and I can understand the weight of What he may be feeling here as well, because if we're honest with one another, we've all endured suffering and humiliation. Perhaps we've not certainly extended that to the depths of what this eunuch may be feeling, but we felt the deep regret of shame. We've carried that burden for so long. We've been humiliated and wrestled with the question, can we ever move past this? And in the midst of those times, perhaps just like this eunuch, perhaps just like Christ upon the cross, we've longed to be lifted up from those moments. We've longed for salvation to come to restore our standing and our position. 
We've longed for someone to come and to make these things right. Just as the suffering servant passage points to the finished work of the Messiah upon the cross, our suffering and difficulty and humiliation points to the finished work of Jesus on the throne where he sits even now ruling over all creation, interceding on our behalf so that we might have communion with God. Whatever the eunuch may be feeling as he reads this, whatever we may feel as we read this, there's hope to be found in the lines from Isaiah. Not just this broader picture of looking at the coming fulfillment of the Messiah, but direct hope to be found here in verse 33, where it says, Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? I would speculate that perhaps our eunuch may have focused on this. Maybe you may focus on this, but... I think this is a hopeful line. Some would argue it's a tragic line because it's talking about the Messiah's life being impacted and ended by the sinfulness of humanity. His line is done. He's no descendants left. Everything is finished. Yet, I would argue, and I think this is the correct perspective, that this line is a celebration of the tragedy of the crucifixion. You see, it brings to mind this phrase, what Satan meant for evil, God used for good. Yes, indeed, it was a tragedy that Jesus died upon the cross. But look at what has come from that. The beauty that has been found that his death has brought forgiveness for our sin and shame. Generations of Christians serve as an inheritance unto the Lord, as descendants of Christ. Yes, there is true horror to be found in the midst of these passages, yet there is hope to be found. There is hope that is present in the midst of the suffering. I, I would submit to you that this eunuch is seeking that hope even now. When he asked Philip, I, I say to you, about whom does the prophet say this, himself or someone else? You see, he's wondering if the writer of these verses is addressing his own personal pain or if he's addressing the pain of someone else like Messiah. He's wondering, is, is there someone who has perhaps lived or is currently living that can understand the depths of the pain that I'm wrestling with? You see, we recognize that as he's wrestling with this, he's wrestling with the issues that many of the Jews of this era were wrestling with. As they look back at the Old Testament, without the light, the full revelation of Christ in their lives, they look at this and they think, well, he must be talking about the pain of the nation that he endured. Maybe Isaiah is writing about the difficulties he's experienced in his own life. But we recognize that what's happening here is that Isaiah is writing, but the pain, the suffering, the humiliation the Messiah will endure for the joy that was set before him that he could call you and I children. Now Philip uses what we've already addressed. He, he takes the New Testament, this story of the gospel message of what Jesus has done to explain what we're reading. And 
Ultimately, I don't know what perhaps Philip would say, but of course he's going to say it's the Messiah that he's writing about. He's talking about the one who has come to pay the debt of our sin. We, we don't particularly know the exact words, but I bet it went something like this. You see, he tells the eunuch that God desires a relationship with him, but the eunuch's sin prevents him from having that relationship. He further displays the eunuch situation underneath the law as utterly hopeless. You see, he can't even enter the temple to offer sacrifices to atone for his sin. So he is completely and totally hopeless. He can never be made right with the Lord. However, but God, God interjects himself into this story. Because the eunuch is not without hope forever. Because Jesus has come. You see, Jesus came to live the life that the eunuch could not live. And he paid the debt of sin that the eunuch could not afford. If he would trust in Jesus as his Savior. That if he would accept the Messiah as his Lord and Savior, his debt is clean, his sin is no more, he has been grafted into the vine, into the family of God. As we hear this, I think that we could replace the eunuch in this story with us. And I think that you'd still tell the exact same story. That we were trapped in our sin and shame. That there was no way forward. There was no hope for you and I because nothing we could do underneath the law would bring freedom and forgiveness to us. Yet into the midst of darkness, light came. That it flared anew like a candle breaking into the room and we see Jesus come into the story who offers a way for us to have forgiveness, to have eternal life, but most importantly, for us to experience community and relationship with God himself. I think that if we look at these beautiful statements and we wrestle with, are they true? We're left with a opportunity to respond we're left with a decision. If these are true, if what we're hearing is real and authentic, what do we do? What is it that we are supposed to do with this message? I believe that brings us to our final point. The movement of God is to bring salvation. Verse 36 reads, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. If these statements are true, and I would assure you from 
not only my faith in the scriptures, but my personal experience with the gospel of Jesus, that they are indeed true, then this demands a response. And I would submit to you that it demands a response of faith and obedience. We see here that the eunuch has perhaps trusted Jesus as his Lord and Savior for a few minutes. There's no indication of any significant time passing. And we see in God's providence that as he professes Christ as a Savior, as he trusts him, in the middle of the desert, they come upon a pool of water. I want you to capture this. Remember when I said earlier that they are in the middle of the desert? They are in a desert land. And they casually come upon a pool of water at precisely the right time for this man to repent of his sin and look to the water and go, what now prevents me from being baptized? Philip's response is to affirm that there is absolutely nothing that prevents him from being baptized any longer and steps into the water with him. Gone is the barrier of physical deformity that the eunuch bears. He's not been healed from that, but it doesn't affect his status before God. Gone is the barrier of his race, where he is not a Jewish by ethnic tradition, and so he cannot enter into this family. Gone is his sin and shame that would prevent him from having communion and relationship with God. Christ has broken down all of these dividing walls in his flesh and his life to unite him to all people together who would trust in God. In this, we have yet another miraculous moment where as they come out of the water, the Spirit just carries Philip away. We don't have any descriptive of what happened, but one moment Philip is baptizing this eunuch. The next, he's in northern Israel preaching the gospel. I mean, this is a pretty incredible moment. Yet we spend so little time here because we get this one line that I want to focus on, that the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So this eunuch continues on rejoicing in the salvation that he has received. As we study the history of the church generations after this, we see that in northern Africa, that there was a very strong gospel presence for hundreds of years after this. We see the church growing and thriving there. That many of perhaps the greatest theologians the church has had have come from northern Africa in this period. And some scholars believe that we can trace the gospel presence of the church in North Africa to this moment where this Ethiopian eunuch receives the gospel of Jesus Christ and goes on to proclaim the good news of Jesus, transforming Northern Africa for the good of God's kingdom and for his glory. Now, is that true? Can we verify that? Perhaps not. There's not a significant ton of evidence that would point to that. However, how can we be surprised by what God might do if he would graft an Ethiopian eunuch into the family? If he would bring Gentiles together into the family? If he would bring sinful people like you and I into the family? Who are we to doubt what God might do? 
as we wrestle with this, as we wonder, where do we go? What do we do? My hope and my prayer is that as we study this, that we have calls just like this Ethiopian eunuch to rejoice and to celebrate in the good news of Jesus. You see, this eunuch leaves this encounter with the gospel of Jesus rejoicing because he has found that which will satisfy him. He has found a drink of water in the dry desert of life and he has quenched his thirst with a well that will never run dry. And I simply ask you today, have you found that same well? Perhaps more importantly, have you drank deeply from that well? Because today, very simply, if you've not drank from that well, if you've not experienced the living waters of Christ that quench your thirst and bring satisfaction, hope, and joy to your life, then you have no reason to rejoice today. But by the free gift of grace that is offered through Christ Jesus, you can drink from that well. That you can find joy and leave here rejoicing in the good news of Jesus Christ. All that it requires is for you to call upon Christ, to acknowledge your sin and shame, to confess that you are in desperate need of a Savior, someone to come and make things right in your life. That someone's name is Jesus. And so here in the next few moments, we'll go into a time of prayer where we'll have silent prayer for you and I individually to wrestle with our sin and shame, to meditate upon what we're to do from this passage. And my hope and my prayer is that our result from this passage, our response to this passage, will be to go to the fountain that never runs dry and cry out to the God of the universe for continual grace, mercy, and forgiveness. If during this time you feel the Spirit stirring something in your life, perhaps speaking to you from the passage or from those around you, or even giving you a burden to speak about something, Please know that I'll be available. Pastor Brian will be available as well. Well, we would love to hear what God is doing in the midst of your life and hear how we can encourage and celebrate the goodness of God with you. So in the next few moments, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll close this. And together we'll stand and we'll sing the goodness of God with our worship team. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you today seeking joy. That in the midst of challenges and difficulties and the things that we are experiencing, we would recognize we truly need a full measure of joy. But even as we come asking for this, we recognize that there is one element of this joy that we need. 
That in fact, if we are lacking this, we cannot find joy in this life. And Lord, that element, that that central piece of finding joy in this life is calling upon the name of Jesus. Lord, it is my hope and prayer that for everyone who is here or watching online that they've encountered the good news of Jesus Christ today. They've heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They've heard of their sin that separates them from God. They've heard that it requires a debt to be paid, and Jesus is willing to pay this debt for those that would trust in him. And Father, it is my prayer that for every man, woman, and child here, that they would recklessly run after this joy that can be found through calling upon the name of Jesus. It is my hope and prayer that everyone under the sound of my voice might experience the redeeming work of Jesus in their life. That they would find true joy not rooted in circumstance, not rooted in earthly prosperity, but rooted in the unfailing rock that is Jesus. So Father, today, as the Spirit is working in our hearts and minds, it is at work in our midst. Would you perhaps redeem people, soften their hearts so that they might be receptive to the word of God, to the very gospel message of Jesus Christ coming to seek and save the lost. That they would repent of their sins today and follow Jesus for the rest of their earthly life and into eternity. Lord, we are grateful for your goodness, your grace, your majesty. And we pray that you pour out your presence upon us. Let us experience your goodness in this time. Father, we thank you for all the things that you've done for us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.